Good morning. I don't see a clock here, so I'm going to set mine, Bishop. I shall set mine, <laughs> Thank you for uh, welcoming me this weekend, and I want to especially thank uh, my good brother, friend, uh, Bishop Julian, for uh, bringing for bringing me out. So, uh, love your brother, and thank you for the. Opportunity to bring the words. Um, you probably saw the video online. I think what you were in Rwanda, I think, when you taped that video. And, uh, you know, we have eminent speakers this, this weekend, uh, archbishops. And then uh, my favorite little clip, you know, we've got Danny Hyde from California. <laughs> and I was like, that's all you can say about me? I'm from, I'm from California? <laughs> my credentials, I guess, speak for themselves. So, well. This morning, we're, uh, we're really going to jump into the deep end. Uh, our passage is going to be the, that end text of Hebrews chapter number 12 that was read for us. And uh, wow, really jumping into the deep end, uh, the very end of Hebrews. So we're going to skip over the whole, the whole thing uh, and go right almost to the end uh, before the uh, apostolic writer gives us there uh, his greetings and well wishes and his farewell. So we're jumping into uh, the deep end this morning, uh, all the way into the very uh, theological and practical conclusion of this uh, great letter. It reminds me of uh, this past winter in Oceanside, California. And yes, I said winter uh, in Oceanside, California. Temperatures got down to uh, about 55 degrees this winter. And uh, we had a few drops from the heavens that we're not really sure how to categorize those things. That stuff called rain. Uh, my, my family of athletes, my wife and I are former athletes, uh, pretending to still be athletes, and um, my kids uh, are athletes, and they're doing great things. My, my kids started a thing this winter called the Coos Club, the Coos Club. Uh, every single night after working out, we would, uh, despite whatever rain might be out there uh, and, the, and the cold weather that we suffer for the Lord in, in Oceanside. Uh, we, my kids decided we're all going to go to the, to the jacuzzi at night and uh, hang out for 20 minutes in that hot, uh, in that hot, nice water. My 13-year-old boy, being uh, as crazy as 13-year-old teenagers can be, uh, decided that uh, after jumping into the jacuzzi for a few minutes and acclimating to the heat, he was going to then go into the cold pool, the unheated pool. Uh, and then my 10-year-old daughter, his little sister, wouldn't be uh, undeterred, and so she stepped up her challenge, and she started in the cold pool. Uh, and then jumped into the jacuzzi, and she did that a couple nights in a row, and always asked Dad to join her, and I was like, there's no way I'm doing that. Uh, it's jacuzzi or, or bust for me. Uh, finally, I decided, you know, I've got I've to show my daughter that, uh, that Dad uh, can, can step up to a challenge every once in a while. So I started off in the cold pool. Have you ever jumped into a cold pool to the deep end? Uh, it just thrills all of your senses, and um, it's exhilarating. And that's how we should feel as we dive into the deep end of Hebrews this morning. We're really jumping into it. Uh, Hebrews is a very practical letter uh, with a very theological foundation. The great question of Hebrews is why keep running the race? Why keep running the race? And these Jewish believers were being tempted on all sides, and the writer wants them to continue running that race. For Jesus. Why? 
So that's the practical question. Well, what's the theological reason? What's the answer to that question? Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He's fulfilled. The writer spends, up to this point, he spent like 10 chapters belaboring this point that Jesus is better than all the Old Testament types and shadows, as he calls them. All those ancient things that were just shadowy figures of the great reality to come. Jesus is better than angels. The angels who deliver the law upon Mount Sinai that we read about just a bit ago. Our Lord Jesus Christ is better than the law itself. He's better than, the Mo- than Moses who received the law from angels upon Mount Sinai. He's better than the priests who were established in that law delivered by angels upon Mount Sinai to Moses. He's better than the tabernacle and the later temple, which the law gave to Moses upon Mount Sinai from heavenly angels. He's better than all the sacrifices that those priests could make in that tabernacle and temple. And in fact, he's better than the entirety of the old covenant itself. Jesus is better. And because he's better, therefore he is worthy of our following him all the way to the end through that great finish line. He's the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him did not despise the shame of the cross, but he endured all the way to the end. And the writer then says, so should we, looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Now, that message is going to sound utterly irrelevant in our age, isn't it? I mean, people don't know anything about Jesus, let alone all the things that happened a thousand plus years before he came. Angels, the law, Mount Sinai, tabernacle temple, priests, Moses, Mount Sinai, uh, the old covenant, the sacrifices itself. All this sounds so uh, so irrelevant, so meaningless to people. No, people want to follow the ideology of our age, which is be true to yourself. Be true to yourself. Be what you want to be. Be what you really deep down inside know that you are. Be what everyone is trying to oppress you from being. Our great Supreme Court once delivered a a ruling in which one of the, the, uh, at that time, one of the young uh, justices, Anthony Kennedy, said that uh, at the heart of the concept of American liberty is the right to define one's own existence. That's the American spirit, isn't it? That we can be whatever we want to be. And nowadays that means means what we we all know it means, doesn't it? We can change our humanity. We can change our identity. We can change who we are. But here's the gospel, that Jesus is better than that too. Jesus, the same Jesus who's better than all the things the Hebrew, uh, the writer of the Hebrew says he's better than. He's the same Jesus who's still better today to all the false promises, all the false hopes, all the false ideologies of our age. And so we come to the deep end of Hebrews, and there's so much to say there uh, in that wonderful passage. But I want to focus on this this morning, of course, knowing that Jesus is better, and he calls us to run the race and to finish that race. But I want to summarize it all by, uh, by saying this, and I really want to apply the passage to one big idea this morning. God calls us here from Hebrews chapter 12, 18 to 29. God calls us, he calls you and me, he calls us to a renewed, a refreshed, a revived vision of what it means to worship God. That's not all the writer says, but that's what we're going to focus on this morning. 
God calls us to a renewed, refreshed, revived vision of what it is to worship Him. And you see, the first way he says that is by not looking back in fear. By not looking back in fear. And he makes this great contrast here in this text between these two mountains. You probably see that. I I hope you see that there. There's Mount Sinai, that's Exodus 19 that we had read for us, and there's Mount Zion. One is the lesser, one is the greater. One mountain was in the ancient past. One is in the future, but in reality, what the writer says, it's not just in the future, but that future is already. That future is already now. We've already come to that future. One is the old covenant. One is the new covenant. One is very foreboding. One is very festive. One is condemning. One is comforting. You have not, he says to us, you have not come to that lesser, past, foreboding, condemning mountain. You've not come. You see there, if if you're taking score here this morning, you'll, you'll see there's seven descriptions of that mountain to which you've not come. What may be touched? A blazing fire, darkness, gloom, tempest, sound of a trumpet, a voice that made the hearers beg. No further messages be spoken to them. In fact, Moses said, I am terrified. You've not come to that. Now he's not saying, he's not saying that there's no gospel in the old covenant. He's not saying that at all. No, but he's saying that if you want to rely upon the old covenants as the basis for your acceptance with God, and, and if you want to go backwards in redemptive history to that mountain, then recognize this reality that that ministry of the law was a ministry of condemnation, a ministry of death, as the Apostle Paul says elsewhere. No, there, there's gospel there, but if you want to rely upon the old covenant as a covenant, and the law as law, well, you've got something coming to you. You've not come. You've not come to this mountain. No, you've come to another one. Don't look back in fear, he says. And so he, uh, so I want to apply that to us, this idea of not looking back in fear by asking the question is, uh, asking the question about worship is, what is the atmosphere, dare I say feeling, dare I say feeling, or the substance of the worship that ministers and people engage in every day, but especially as we gather together for public worship. What's, What's the atmosphere of that worship? What is the sense that it should be conveying to us? What's the substance of what's going on when we gather? To sing, to pray, to hear the word. Too often in in historically Protestant churches, the feeling is very, very foreboding. It's very condemning. Now, I come from a Dutch Reformed denomination uh, where we've been, been, uh, uh, it's been ingrained into us that if people don't walk out those doors feeling just a little bit guilty, we've not done our job. (laughs) You've got to leave people, you know, Yes, you give them the gospel, but, you know, you want them to just have just a little bit of, you know, there's something missing. 
Why? Why? Because we want him to come back next Sunday. That's the law. That's the law. That's Mount Sinai. That's the past. That's the lesser. That's the old covenant. That's foreboding. That's condemning. No, the sense and the spirit and the atmosphere, the substance of what we do is not looking back in fear, but in fact, he says, secondly, looking forward or even upward in faith. Looking forward and looking upward in faith. And so our worship ought to be refreshed and renewed and revived as we, we don't look back, but we do look forward to Christ, but especially he's describing here this heavenly look, this upward look. My 16-year-old runs uh, cross-country, and, and he runs track and field, and, and uh, every time we, we go to one of his meets, we hear his coach screaming at the top of her lungs, not just to him, but to all of his teammates, look forward. Why? If you've ever run a race, you know that looking back over your shoulder, you're going to slow down. You're going to start hearing those footsteps behind you. You're going you're to get afraid of what position you might place. You're going to panic. You're going to panic. Look forward. Not come to that ancient mountain with all of its fear and terror. No, you've come, he says. You've come to another mountain. This language of coming in the book of Hebrews is uh, used multiple times. I'll just give you the, the Cliff's notes here. It means to draw near to God, to come and to draw near to God, who is that most ultimate of realities, of all that that ancient covenant was always pointing forward to. The presence and the fellowship and the love of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. But how? The question is how. How do we come to a mountain that you and I can't see? How do we come to a Savior that is no longer here in his body? who has ascended to the right hand of God. How do we come with joy and not fear to this place? How do we come, brothers and sisters? I'm used to people talking to me during the sermon, so you've you got to say something here, people. Come on now. I'm a former Pentecostal. You know, I've got to hear something. I've got to hear something. How do we come to God? Through Jesus. Through Christ. Through faith. We come to him through faith, and that's, that's what Hebrews 11 was all about, if we would go back there and look. Faith is the substance of things not seen, the evidence of those things which we cannot even touch. We can't see Jesus now. We can't touch him and hold him and embrace him and see those wounds in his hands and feet and side and forehead. <clears throat> no, but you can come to him by faith because faith is the substance. It is the evidence already now of those things that one day... It will no longer be faith, but it will actually be sight. It's not the decor, not the architecture. It's not the clothing we wear, the, 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 the ancient chants or liturgies that we might even use. No, it's Christ that we come to by faith already. That is the substance of our worship. And just like he gave seven contrasts, uh, seven descriptions, that is, of that ancient mountain, there are seven descriptions of this great mountain in contrast. Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Notice this language of uh, this heavenliness 
idea. There's innumerable angels and festal gathering. That comes right from the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, to describe the ancient Israelite feasts. These angels are gathering in festal gathering, in, in public service to God. The assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. The God, the judge of all, and so forth. Do you realize that when you gather together with other saints, with other Christians, with other believers, that you're not just coming to, to this wood right here that's hard, or we have these clothes, we have these bodies, we have other faces that we see and other people that we can touch and, and embrace. We're not just coming here for our own sake. Christian worship is not a sociological experiment. We come to heaven itself. We come to heaven. And whether we are in an underground bunker or whether we are in a cathedral, we come to heaven in worship. What does that mean for our worship? It means that we should be a gospel people. Right. We should be a gospel people. Good news. Good news. Great news of great joy has come to the earth. We should be a joyful people. Yes, we confess our sins. Yes, we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, that, but that he might lift us up. We come with joy to public worship. And we all know as ministers that we can come very perfunctorily at times and we can, we can uh, feel nothing at times. We've heard the old, old story so many times it's, and, and it's one ear out the other and we can just go through the liturgy. We can do our thing. We all know that, but we should be a joyful people. In fact, a heavenly people already here on this earth, a heavenly people living a heavenly life. Our worship should express that heavenliness. You've not come to that mountain. Don't go back to that in fear. Don't drag your people. Don't Ministers, don't drag your people back to that mountain in fear. Pull them forward. Lead them forward. Lead them upward to our Lord Jesus Christ at the right hand of God. With joy. With good news. Well, again, how, how do we do this? How do we do this? Bishop, what do I have on time here? Oh, I'm at 18 minutes, brother. I'm at 18 minutes. I'm just getting warmed up. I'm just getting warmed up. I'm going to keep it at three points, I, I, I promise. How do we not look back? How do we look forward? How do we look upward? This all seems so fake. This all seems so imaginary. This all seems so ethereal. It seems so irrelevant. It doesn't really touch us where we're at, it feels like. You know, Pastor, I get it. I, you know, this, this all makes great sense, but it just doesn't feel real. Not going back, going forward. It's a great idea, but, but how? But how? Did you hear what the writer said there after that great comparison and contrast, verses 18 through, through 24, about that ancient mountain, Mount, of, uh, Mount Sinai and then that Mount Zion? But then look at what he says in verse 25 through 27. How do we do this? By hearing the word of him. And notice the tense of the verb, of him who is speaking. Who is speaking. Way back in chapter 2, he's, he tells us to pay very, very close attention to the things that we've heard. 
He told us back in chapter 4, verse 16, that the Word of God is living and active. Living and active. Did God just speak to you in those readings? What does God's voice sound like? What does God's voice sound like? It sounds like the voice of a person reading the word. It sounds like your voice in your own head as you read it, maybe even silently. That's the voice of God. How do we go forward in faith in our worship? How is our worship refreshed by not going back, but by going forward and upward? It's by hearing the word. Notice that. The word, brothers and sisters. The word. The word. Pay close attention. It's living and active. He is presently speaking to you and to me. I saw a video, must have been a couple of weeks ago. Uh, you, might, you might know this name, Brandon Robertson. You might know that name. He used to be, uh, I, I, I don't think he is anymore, but he, at one point he was a, uh, a pastor, and I use that word lightly, uh, loosely, in San Diego. California. Uh, he's part of this, this, uh, this movement of gay Christianity, uh, of affirming Christianity. Uh, and he said in an interview about the book of Hebrews and the, the scriptures themselves, he said that, well, of course the book of Hebrews is anti-Semitic. Of course the gospels aren't the actual words of Jesus, but of cisgendered males. And in fact, it's only in the last 20 or so years that we, we have understood the Bible because of progressive, deconstructive exegesis and interpretation. Now, he, he's very famous on TikTok, and I don't encourage you to go find him, but... Uh, <laughs> It would be a good exercise for us as believers to listen to what people are saying. And these are the voices, especially in our kids' heads. Now he calls himself a Christian agnostic. A Christian agnostic. He's a gay, affirming pastor who believes that all the passages that you and I know so well are, are not really saying what, they really, what, what we think they mean. Uh, but uh, they mean the complete opposite. Now he calls himself a Christian agnostic. You see, brothers and sisters, deviation from the word leads to destruction of faith. It's not loving. <laughs> it's not loving. It's soul-destroying to go down this path of picking and choosing which parts of the Bible are relevant to us, are meaningful to us, the ones that we latch on to, the ones that we grasp on to, the parts that we say, oh, that, that, that's really Jesus there. This is back, back when I was in seminary, even before, you know, they, they had the different uh, marble colored, uh, uh, the different marbles, you know, and, the, and they would vote on which statements in the gospel that was authentically Jesus. That's a, a white marble over there, not Jesus, a black marble over here. And they came up with which are real and which aren't. And today, people want to pick and choose which parts of the word are the word. And what happens, though, is in reality, in this person, 
this TikTok star, this TikTok pastor, and, and those like him, what they really want you to believe, it's no longer the Word of God, but it's their Word is the Word of God. I say that because the writer calls us back to the Word. Do not refuse him who is speaking. And when we gather together for public worship, we have to have that sense and that expectation. And we, as, as, as those who preach, need to ourselves expect God to speak. And we should want our people to come expecting us to say something from God, for God, for their good. We're not just coming to, to read through and, and to finish it up quickly. And uh, no doubt in, uh, in, in Anglican churches, I would assume, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's one hour, right? It's one hour. It's in and out. You know, pastor, we got to get out of here. You know, I, I got things to do. In and out in an hour. Do you expect God to speak? Well, God can speak in a 10-minute sermon too. Speak in an hour sermon. But God speaks in his word. And so we come to worship. We read Hebrews 12, and it encourages us, again, to have a revived and, and, and restored and, and refreshed and renewed vision of what worship is, and it is coming to heaven to hear the very voice of God from heaven to us now here in our pilgrimage journey on earth so that we might continue to move forward past that finish line and eventually up with him in utter, intimate, personal, eternal fellowship with the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Let's give thanks. Lord, thank you for the word. Thank you for your speaking to us today. Impress these words deeply upon our souls and our spirits so that we might go forth to serve you. And Lord, especially in the, in the, in the idea of worship, the concept of worship, the essence of it all, Lord, is to bring ourselves by faith to Jesus to come to you and we do pray Lord for those who are confused today and those who are lost those who are wandering those who've left the faith those Lord who who hear so many voices we pray that your voice would sound loudest of all in the midst of all the chaos and confusion and noise so that people who are confused and lost and even this uh, this gentleman who calls himself now a Christian agnostic, a gay Christian, an affirming Christian, that he might come to know Jesus. And we ask it all in his name and all of God's people say, Amen. Amen. Amen.